Hello and welcome back to the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am, of course, Sotak Andre, and you're listening to episode 46, in which Daniel Lennon makes his third appearance on the podcast, which is a record for our guests. And in this one, we discuss the topic that we both find most interesting right now in the field of nutrition, and that is chrononutrition, how uh, the time of the day and uh, sort of the light and dark cycle influences our eating behavior and also the other way around, you know, perhaps how we should distribute our food intake with regards to the light and dark cycle. So in this one, I try to take a different approach to most conversations because most um, of these chrononutrition-related discussions usually just talk about, you know, um, for general population and how how you should, you know, restrict your feeding hours, that sort of stuff. Try to take a different approach with this. I try to view it from more of a bodybuilding or physique optimization point of view, which would be the focus of this podcast. So you will find, um, you know, uh, we also touched on very practical and very relevant aspects of this uh, uh, this issue. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it valuable. And uh, make sure to also check out some of the episodes I linked in the description of this uh, podcast, which are also related and... Um, and we will give you further insight on this topic. So enjoy episode 46 of the Muscle Engineer Podcast with Danny Lennon. All right, Danny, thank you so much for joining me again. Uh, thank you for asking me on the podcast, man. It's a pleasure. And uh, unfortunately, these are very weird and, and, and strange times, but uh, seems uh, like a good opportunity to, you know, take up this whole issue of chrononutrition because uh, I think now more than ever, many people find their just basically their wake and sleep schedules messed up or disturbed and you know their eating schedule maybe it's all over the place for a vast majority of people who are just stuck at home right now and you don't have that you know um routine or structure to it so that's what i thought it would be very good to to address this issue right now yeah for sure i think like you said there's a, a lot of uh loss of normal routine gone about and i think some of that means a change in people's schedules and probably meal timing and so on so it might be a a good opportunity to explore some of those ideas so i would assume that most people click on the episode already knowing what they're in for but if they're not could you just give a three to five minute physiology overview of what chrononutrition is and what's basically the current state of the science on it Sure. So to give the kind of briefest, most uh, simplistic discussion, I would say chrononutrition is a branch that uh, of research that's came from the interaction between how or what we eat, the timing of when we eat that food, and how that impacts our uh, chronobiology. And so chronobiology looks at different time-based phenomena within uh, biology and there are many examples of these and one of the specific kind of sub branches of that would be around circadian biology and many of your listeners have probably heard of circadian rhythms which are these biological processes that have a time course of about 24 hours uh, and within the body there are many of these processes that run on this circadian rhythm so for example if you take some hormones like 
cortisol. Cortisol has a predictable pattern that repeats every 24 hours or in and about 24 hours, as we'll explain in a moment. So starting high early in the day, dipping down uh, throughout the day is a normal time course. And that just repeats over and over at about every 24 hours. We have other things like insulin sensitivity does the same. It has, uh, will start highest during the day, dips down. We see that kind of repeat. We have a circadian rhythm to things like our body heat uh, or our core body temperature, I should say. Um, we have it in relation to uh, many other uh, biological processes, which we'll probably discuss later on. And so we know that these circadian rhythms are regulated by certain stimuli. And what probably is the strongest regulator of these external to us is light and dark exposure. And this kind of makes sense that exposure to light or dark gives a signal to our body when is it day and when is it night. So it can essentially fine tune these rhythms to a more precise 24 hour period because endogenously or, or without exposure to these external stimuli, they don't run at exactly 24 hours. They can be probably a bit longer on average, but it also can be a bit shorter. So to refine that to match the exact 24 hours of our solar day, we can use these external stimuli in our environment to, let's say, fine tune or what we would call entrain those circadian rhythms to this precise uh, time frame. And what we've started to see is that not only do light and dark potentially exhibit a, um, a stimulating effect on this, we also can have entrainment of circadian rhythms by exposure to nutrients. And so this starts to open us up questions that are now being looked at in research of when we eat certain nutrients or meals, what implications does it have from a circadian rhythm perspective? Does it matter when we eat, over what time frames, um, and any questions related to that. So the way I've tended to think of it more simply is if we can look at it in maybe four distinct areas that would all relate to chrononutrition more broadly. One would be around the timing of meals. So an example would be if we eat a specific meal early in the day versus at nighttime, do we see differences? Two, there, and based off the back of that, is there best, better times to eat and better times to avoid eating? Uh, two would be the consistency of meal timing. So from day to day, is it better to have eat meals at the same time or does it matter? Three would be the feeding and fasting window. So this would be um, what people may have seen with relation to daily intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding protocols. Essentially, what is the length of the feeding window we have and for how many hours are we fasting per day? And then the kind of fourth element uh, would be related to energy distribution. So given a certain amount of calories or food that we're going to consume over a day, doesn't matter where in the day the majority of that is consumed and how all those things can impact our health through impacting uh, circadian rhythms. So that's the, the general field. And right now we've started to get there's a there's a lot of work that is being done there's still a lot of questions that we still need to uh, find out but there are probably a at least a handful of conclusions that i think are relatively consistent across the literature which we can we can get into um i don't know if you want to 
dive into those now or if you have any specific questions over some of that ramble oh that's been great i have so many questions actually um what i would like to you know touch on specifically so that study which has been reviewed reviewed on mass you know and the one you also shared i would like to touch a bit on that because as far as i know it's the first or maybe one of the first that was had you know calorie control so it's had the same meal basically distributed in different time points of the day am i wrong in that from what i can remember of that study i think it was in the condition where they were consuming the meals when they consume their breakfast meals basically the thermic effect of feeding or what we call diet induced thermogenesis was quite a bit higher following breakfast than following dinner so i think in that study it was like two and a half times higher after breakfast than than dinner um and this was independent of the amount of calories in each of those meals so this would suggest that our energy expenditure is higher when calories get biased to earlier in the day um, versus later even though the the total amount for the day would be the same um now that is kind of a interpretation of what this might mean because i i'd have to check but from memory i don't think that total energy expenditure for the whole 24 hours was reported in that specific study um and there are other studies that have looked at this that haven't really seen any differences in total energy expenditure um across the day others that suggest that there may be uh differences in energy expenditure so right now it's trying to kind of piece these little um, essentially pieces of the puzzle together and trying to interpret what that might mean but we don't have any kind of direct answers yet as as to how much of an effect biasing those early in the day has on total energy expenditure so there is this one on thermic effective feeding and that's also there was another study that i think i included in that written piece i did for stronger by science where they also saw higher diet induced thermogenesis at the breakfast meal i think it was like 44 percent higher in that one um and there's also having a meal structure that biases more food towards earlier in the day i think this was the daniela Jakubovic study showed that you have differences oh no this was the paper out of bath actually i believe the, the breakfast study uh, james betts was the lead author on it that showed when people had a large breakfast versus fasting until 12 p.m they had greater um, physical activity um, across the day so this is low intensity physical activity um, across the day when they'd had that large breakfast versus skipping breakfast to lunch now again this is just suggestive that maybe there's an influence on overall energy expenditure and therefore energy balance when we bias those calories and the hypothesis would be biasing more of our calories to an earlier part in the day um, would be beneficial for that now again we still need to answer is is are the differences we're going to see practically meaningful um also what does it mean to be earlier in the day like how early does it have to be how what percentage of calories do we need to put there so these are all questions that are very difficult to answer um but it is suggestive that keeping a large percentage of calories for the very end of the day may not be the best for for some of those reasons 
um, at least in some contexts, and that will vary from person to person. But on average, for a lot of people, there may be a benefit to pushing a, a higher percentage of calories towards an earlier time point, at least. Mm. So I have a couple of not necessarily issues because I just I guess it just hasn't been studied yet questions or you know caveats with this whole literature and I definitely find it interesting like I have been saying to my friends I think I said this to you I think you agree I think you said this yourself that this is the subdomain of nutritional science we find most interesting right now because you know we probably have beaten to that the whole fat versus carb thing and you know the energy balance thing has been so overstudied. I'm just sick and bored with it. <laughs> Every time I see a new, oh, you know, eating high fiber diet is good. Like, gee, thanks. <laughs> we only had 500 references up to this point to prove this. So, uh, you know, I find it very interesting that, uh, you know, how long it's been the whole, you know, don't eat after 6 p.m. because you'll get fat. And that sort of has been... Uh, dismiss completely that you know is just calories in calories out and the whole carb backloading thing and that has become popular and intermittent fasting and don't eat up until 4 p.m just you know um, drink bulletproof coffee and whatever so I find it very interesting how the pendulum sort of came back now so the caveats I mentioned or the questions I would have is are these people who want track their calories or track their step count, for example. Uh, so basically, are we talking about people who are aware, so to speak, or this is just sort of, you know, basically um, in an ad libitum sense, although I guess it's not the best term, but you know what I mean, that just people who are living their habitual lives and this is sort of impacting them without them necessarily being very conscious, which of course has its benefits because it can be a very simple, you know, prescribing method, but I'm also talking about from a bodybuilding or, you know, fitness perspective. And are we talking about resistance training being performed before that big meal? Because I think I mentioned to you this in private, but uh, I had I had this very weird schedule and I wanted to touch on this later, but basically I was training for a couple of weeks now that I have been on lockdown. I've been training at like 8 p.m. up until 10 something. And then I would eat a final meal, which has been also my largest one at 11, sometimes even 12. In the, So basically at midnight. And, you know, my colleague does the same and uh, he's very lean. I mean, and he eats like he's just a generic anomaly when it comes to calorie intake. Like he's around the same, a bit lighter than me, less body fat, much more muscle mass, eats more than a thousand calories <laughs> than me. And he's, you know, he eats, uh, he eats throughout the day as well, but he eats a huge dinner or whatever post-workout. So, of course, we also have a bunch of people who do, you know, car backloading or intermittent fasting. Obviously, they are not all obese and, uh, you know, metabolically unhealthy. So that has been my, uh, basically, my biggest question with this whole uh, literature. Like, how big is the impact? And do factors like, you know, actually monitoring your calories or actually training before... Um, having that big meal, does that uh, somehow balance the scale, so to speak? Right. So I think there's a few really important points that, that you bring up here. So first of all, that and this is something we need to consider pretty much in all discussions around nutrition and metabolism, is making sure when we're talking about whether something is beneficial or not, 
whether at that time we're discussing, are we saying it purely from a physiological perspective? Are we, or are we talking pragmatically about what may happen for this person in, in practice? Because they're two slightly different things. So physiology, we can look at it, it just in a, a vacuum of just what happens between these two conditions in highly controlled way. Are there differences in physiology? Pragmatically, that opens us up to, does this change people's behavior? Does it meet, does it lead them to change how much they're consuming overall, etc.? So if we, if we look first at physiologically, because this may be more relevant than if you're saying people that track all their activity, track their food intake, and so on. The first point I would make is that changing any of this timing doesn't in any way invalidate anything we say about energy balance. If there were to be benefits from a body composition perspective, they would still be driven through this this change in timing being able to influence energy balance in some way. So like we just said, these hypotheses around can it change energy expenditure through impacting diet-induced thermogenesis or um, low-intensity physical activity, etc. Those are just different ways to impact energy expenditure. So it's not invalidating anything to do with energy balance in, in that sense. Second is that it's certainly to be able to make body composition a progress with your body composition goals, there's a million and one ways you can set up your structure and timing of foods as long as you have energy balance set up to help you accomplish that. So let's say we're talking about losing body fat. As long as that person is in a caloric deficit, then they are going to be losing body fat whether they put all their calories at the start of the day or the end of the day. The question is, is that the best thing to be doing and there's some other reasons to consider whether that's the health effects whether that's the impacts on hunger and appetite which there's uh, some data on um whether it's making it more difficult to achieve that calorie deficit or not these are like questions we can ask but if someone did want to put let's say all their calories towards the end of the day and just made sure to eat a small enough amount of them that they were still in a deficit, they would still lose body fat. So it's not magically stopping some of those things from happening that we know. So the, the, and the other aspect that you said is, is it more relevant to people who are maybe not tracking people who are kind of eating on a ad libitum basis? I would say for a lot of the interventions related to chrononutrition, that is likely true in that if you see a lot of the, the data around time-restricted feeding, that helps people to better control caloric intake a lot of times you see reductions in overall calories consumed in in those interventions without people tracking any calories and that's what is leading to weight loss in some of those trials uh, you see better control of blood glucose um, for example so benefits that are occurring with time restricted feeding or biasing calories to earlier in the day or not eating large meals at night are all relevant and, and do happen, but they aren't anything that is, um, let's say, preventing someone in a bodybuilding sense from making progress if they are tracking calories or not. So um, hopefully that makes sense. So where the benefit may be for, let's say, someone who is tracking calories, is making sure they're staying physically active, is able to uh, continue to monitor their body composition progress to make sure everything's going as it should the benefit may be more things like um if it were to influence your energy expenditure maybe then you 
could theoretically be dieting on more calories, although I'm not actually convinced that that is the case. What I think is probably more likely is there's been a couple of studies that biasing more of those calories early in the day can actually have uh, benefits for overall appetite and hunger levels across the day. Um, again, whether that whether that extends out to athletic populations, we don't actually know yet, but it, it seems that it could be. Um, and then there are some, it depends how much of the general health benefits people care about. Um, then there are other indirect aspects that we could consider. So let's say someone has a lot of their caloric intake at night. If they push more of that to earlier in the day, and therefore if they train in the evening time, and they have more calories in their system by the time they start training, could that influence their training performance? And if so, if you stack that up over enough days and over enough weeks and over enough months, could that have some sort of impact on their progress? Maybe. Again, it's just a hypothesis, but maybe not. Um, so I think the, and then, then the final thing uh, that you asked about was if people are training in the evening time, does that change some of the... Um, or does that mitigate some of the downsides that we might see from eating late at night? So one thing that we do know is because of the change in insulin sensitivity across the day um, and that circadian rhythm to it, it's we're at, we have the worst insulin sensitivity in the evening time and nighttime. So from that sense, we see if you have a meal with a decent amount of carbohydrates at night, you get a worse blood glucose response than if you had the exact same meal earlier in the day. And this is quite replicable across pretty much most people. So you have a greater blood glucose excursion from a carbohydrate feeding at night than you would have in the morning. Now, for someone who has trained, the, the difference is we know in the hours after, say, a resistance training session, that you can move uh, glucose from the blood into a muscle cell without needing insulin to mediate that process. So therefore, even if you are more insulin resistant at that time point in the evening and you consume some carbohydrate, if you've trained in the hours beforehand, you can easily move that glucose into muscle cells, i.e. you have better blood glucose disposal. And so you can keep that blood glucose response down because you're able to quickly and efficiently move it into muscle and out of the blood. So from that perspective, that person who has done some resistance training uh, doesn't see those negatives in terms of a blood glucose excursion that someone who hadn't done any of that would see. So there's definitely benefits there. Also, overall, people who are more physically active um, and at a healthier uh, body fat level are going to be generally healthier and so probably going to have better blood glucose uh, control anyway, regardless of, for them, their being more insulin uh, resistant in the evening time, still their overall blood glucose responses are relatively good because they're healthier. Uh, so in that sense, it may be more relevant or there may be a bigger profound impact in practice for people who want to be able to control their blood glucose better um, and for people who are maybe more sedentary or maybe have some other kind of health issues than your typical bodybuilder. It, but it also, um, like we said, from if they want to make progress with their body composition, that can still be done even if they're eating at times that we say, well, from a circadian perspective, may not 
be ideal based on some of these hypotheses we have, um, they, they can still make progress. And I think most people will know this from practice, whether they've done an intermittent fasting style type of uh, diet where they have a lot of their calories late at night and they've still been able to progress body comp wise. So it's not stopping any of that happening, but there are benefits perhaps to changing some of our meal timing for other reasons that may be worth considering depending on how much someone cares about some of the other stuff, if that answers the question. Hey guys, I interrupt the episode to remind you that as much as I love making these episodes, they do not pay the bills coaching does for me. So if you'd be interested in working with me in a one-to-one fashion, I also offer online coaching for a limited number of clients interested in uh, body composition optimization. So if you'd like to lose fat, build muscle, or any combination of the two, then uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me via an email. My email address is always in the description of these episodes and we can chat further from there. I am also available for 30 or 60 minute consultations for people who are not quite ready to invest into a full-on coach just yet. Thank you and let's continue the episode. Oh yeah, it doesn't. So many points I won't be able to pick up on all of them. I think for general population, the behavior aspect is the largest insofar as, you know, if you tell someone don't eat past 8 p.m., it's not necessarily the timing that's going to have the biggest impact, I think, is simply the food choices. Because, you know, I snack on apples at 1 a.m., but most people will not watch a movie and eat apples. They will eat popcorn and chocolate and that sort of stuff. So that's probably the biggest impact. And for more so the lifter lifters, I think balancing the performance aspect versus, you know, actual adherence is the most interesting aspect because you know i find that after the workout i am just so hungry but i'm sure some will respond to that yeah that's actually that's how i try to you know disprove my own hypothesis is that someone will respond with well yeah because you don't really eat much before the workout so maybe if you ate more before the workout then you wouldn't be so hungry which is true but i also find it a bit less practical because you know i mentioned the the caffeine aspect so i find it easier to go through um without food in the earlier part of the day simply because i can just you know drink a liter of energy drink and i'm just uh, <laughs> right now i'm just hyped and i'm not feeling hungry at all um but obviously you can't do that in the evening so i think that's also a practical issue that's uh, worth considering mm. yeah and i also want to be careful that when we say pushing some of those calories earlier in the day we don't have a good answer like i said earlier of to what we exactly should determine as earlier in the day and where we place those calories and there's a lot of good studies being done at the moment looking at this energy distribution question what i don't think we need to say is that you need to eat as soon as you get up right or within the first hour you need to have this big breakfast necessarily and i don't think it's that we should have all our calories in the first half of the day or anything like that. I think it's what we probably know is that eating large meals late at night or close to bedtime is probably not as productive as earlier in the day. So our metabolism for those meals is different. In, for example, the uh, blood glucose response I talked about, if you look at free fatty acids in the blood, for example, um, those things have worse responses for that large meal at night. Um, and it also, we can get into the, kind of the circadian stuff that we mentioned earlier. 
but it just means if we're having pushing that to a bit earlier in the day that we're maybe leaving a few hours pre-sleep where we're not consuming these large meals with carbohydrate and fat in them that the the easiest way for people to start playing around with this and even with time restricted feeding is to say okay i'm going to have most of my food intake with what corresponds to daylight hours so when it's bright outside that most of my food comes within that window of time so that i'm avoiding keeping lots of it for nighttime i think it's a good way for people to start and just putting some parameter on what that feeding window is so that is a one way to kind of conceptualize that we're not saying everyone needs to eat a ton of food early in the day because i'm, I'm the same i don't like getting up and having a, a large breakfast immediately so even though i'll say I maybe have started to push more of my intake earlier and don't try and have a lot of it very late. My first meal may not come until 11 a.m., 11.30 a.m., even though I've been awake for several hours. But when I have those meals during the middle of the day or late afternoon, early evening, they're going to be relatively large. And then I'm not going to have a large amount of calories left just before bed. Um, So I think that is important when we talk about this this earlier meal timing it's definitely not saying oh you must eat breakfast as soon as you wake up or anything like that so we, we need to pay attention to what works best for each individual uh, as well because there's also now a lot of research looking at how your chronotype can affect where uh, what what we mean by this earlier or later timing and how that may be relevant for you so people who are typically uh, a late chronotype will have a, a different, let's say, timing window where they're going to consume those those nutrients and someone who's an earlier one, or this at least one of the hypotheses that has been looked in at. So I uh, just want to kind of clarify that there's no real hard and fast rules for when you must eat. Yeah, you've had some very good episodes on this topic about chronotypes. I, I did listen to them. Now, I remember that uh, I think the first person who has really highlighted this probably has been Bill Lagakos for me a couple of years ago. And I remember reading some studies that, you know, you can, quote-unquote, you know, start the clock even with non-food um, items, so to speak, so with coffee and energy drinks. Is that accurate or does it have to be food? Like, does eating energy drinks or uh, having a coffee when you wake up, does that also count as, you know, starting the clock, so to speak? Yeah, I think I've seen similar. There's definitely a study I've looked at where I think it was caffeine they were actually looking at um, that technically would ha- have a, a, an effect on entraining or, um, yeah, in training circadian clocks. And it's essentially that it's recognizing there's a metabolism of a certain um, nutrient happening here. So I, I think if we're being technical, probably caffeine can help set that clock early. Um, I think, like you said, if you have light exposure early in the day, that's probably the best thing you can do. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily think in order to have alignment between your circadian clocks that you need to have a large meal at the start of the day to match up with that. I think, yeah, if you're having some light exposure, that is is, is probably fine and if you're having some caffeine that's probably going to be recognized as well so from what i can remember i i I, th- I think there's at least data to show that that caffeine can have an impact on 
circadian clocks as well. That's great news and that's probably going to be a very good thing to hear for many people. Now, before we get into a more general uh, discussion about chronotypes and, you know, the whole COVID-19 situation, I want to touch on one final bodybuilding related issue because you mentioned about not eating, you know, a couple of hours before bed and obviously the other um, um, side or the other perspective is this very high um, protein spread or very high, high number of protein feedings throughout the day. That's something that uh, people like Mike Zretter are still very um, vocal about that, you know, you should have a protein shake as soon as you wake up because you've been, you know, catabolic, quote unquote, for like eight plus hours at least. And you should also have some protein before bed. And obviously, Luke Van Loo's lab in Jordan, uh, Trommelen has, has uh, produced a number of papers uh, related to that topic. So um, how do you balance those things, you know, especially for someone who maybe wants to try an early time restricted feeding um, window, so to speak. So maybe they eat from like 8 till, I've seen papers uh, ending the feeding window at like 4 p.m., but let's say 6 p.m., so let's say they eat um, all of their calories up until 6 p.m., like how would you, um, what, what would you recommend to those people if they are maybe interested in also maximizing their, you know, muscle growth and that sort of stuff, and, um, you know, how would you distribute protein throughout the day for those people? Yeah, so first thing I would say is this all comes down to what is the the primary goal of our nutrition and for this individual. If someone's primary goal is to gain as much muscle mass as they possibly can, then that strategy is probably going to be different to what the I would say to the average person to be doing or even what I would be doing, right? Or even for a lot of people who who strength train, right? Because I think it would be if if the only lens we're looking at this is to gain as much muscle as possible, then it would be uh there's, there's no way to refute the idea, well, let's just go with protein feeding as soon as we wake all the way until we end and just to err on the side of caution and get those regular protein feedings as much as possible. Um, so in that respect, if that's your primary goal, then go, go with that. In terms of how you can, this ties into the circadian stuff and the late night eating that I mentioned. Interestingly, there's a way that we can make use of that data that came out uh, of Luke Van Loon's lab showing the, the potential benefit to, let's say, a, a protein feeding pre-sleep um, in that those detrimental changes in the metabolism of a meal that I mentioned earlier seem to be related to blood glucose from carbohydrates and then free fatty acids coming from dietary fat but we don't seem to see the same kind of problems from a protein feeding, which is actually what Luke Van Loon's work shows us, even though that was looked at it from a kind of sports nutrition perspective, in that in the um, nasal feeding study that they had, you see that overnight as people were sleeping, there was complete digestion of that protein. And so that gives us a another hypothesis. And again, I think some work is trying to look at this, that... At nighttime, having a protein feeding may not be, is, is, well, it's definitely not going to be as problematic as carbohydrate and fat feeding because we don't see those um, big uh, excursions in glucose and problems with uh, free fatty acids because we're just having a protein feeding. So what someone could do is partition their carbohydrates and fats to that middle part of the day, like we mentioned, and then for that final feeding, 
pre-sleep, if they're going to have that in the couple hours before bed, you can have a high protein, but low carb, low fat feeding. So this would be your like classic uh, whey or casein shake, right? Uh, Pre-sleep like was used in those studies. And that would actually probably not have some of those detrimental uh, metabolic um, consequences. So I think that actually from that perspective fits in nicely. Um, And so the, the other part of your question is if someone wanted to go with an early time restricted feeding, where they are, let's say, having a feeding window of, let's say, eight hours, but they determine, okay, I'm going to have my final meal by 6 p.m. How does that marry up with the the uh, protein and, and muscle mass literature? What I would say is if during that eight-hour window, if someone has had, let's say, um, the three to four high-protein servings split across those eight hours and each of those is at a high enough dose of protein and a high enough dose of leucine to maximize muscle protein synthesis then i would find it difficult that to to say that person doing that and doing resistance training wouldn't be able to close to maximize the amount of muscle that they're building um and i wouldn't be worried about that really at all if their overall protein intake and they're splitting it across let's say those four high protein meals even if their last meal comes at 6 p.m i would have a really difficult time suggesting that there's actually going to be any meaningful difference in the amount of muscle mass they're going to build over a course of uh, of a, a training block or over a course of a year or whatever um, now theoretically could it be better if we have an extra protein feeding uh, in those hours before bed or more nutrients in the evening time again maybe right but how meaningful that is i don't know if it it's necessary it's if it's necessary for a lot of people um but if someone's goal is to again just build as much muscle as possible then we don't really they're probably not going to need to worry about everything from this health perspective um in the same way and so we might even do especially let's say they're struggling to eat enough calories we might say look just have a big meal before bed uh, anyway, um, even though it's going to have what it, the metabolism that we mentioned earlier. So there are some of my thoughts on that, and hopefully they're coherent in some way. But I, I think the protein pre-sleep actually fits in that we could probably do that and it not have any major issue because there's no carbohydrate or fat in, in those feedings. Um, and then secondly, if someone did want to do an early time restricted feeding window, I think if their protein is on point and you have three to four meals and your resistance training, like I, I just don't think there's going to be any real downside to not having uh, another protein serving at nighttime. You know, I really like uh, talking to you about this topic because it's obvious that you are also a practitioner yourself and that comes through very well in your responses because, you know, um, it's it's very hard to talk about this with someone who is just a researcher or maybe just a practitioner because both of them are going to lack some perspective in this regard so i really appreciate you know your insights in this and i do agree that you know we tend to us quote-unquote bodybuilders tend to be a bit paranoid with our muscle loss and just experientially and you know seeing people like it's really, really hard to lose muscle mass up until you get to that extremes of body fat level, which, of course, probably no one listening to, to this is. And 
if they are, then probably they have also, quote-unquote, found what works for them. Because, you know, this colleague of mine, like I have been talking with him about, um, I've been mentioning to him that, for example, I train fasted every now and again, or I'm not really hungry. He's like, yeah, because you have plenty of fat on your body. Like, if you got down to, let's say, 8% body fat and you wanted to come down lower still, believe me, you wouldn't train fasted and you would eat as soon as you woke up because otherwise you just feel like you're about to fall on your head, you know, because <laughs> you don't have these reserves. And it's it's hard for people to... And we understand that if they haven't been in in the those shoes, so to speak. Yeah, and and I think um, for me, because I've came at this from the nutrition perspective, because that's my background. I think probably in the past I was probably trying to look at well, how do we actually maximize this from a muscle protein synthesis perspective? And it was a kind of very narrow view of thinking about either gaining muscle or muscle retention. And so I think over time. I've been actually much more lax on how much protein I think people probably need to have and the exact timing of it because more and more it's it's about okay the the where you need to spend nearly all of your attention is on the stimulus you're giving that muscle with your training and if you're training consistently and in a way that's providing adequate stimulus to that muscle then once your daily protein intake is fairly reasonable, like before I used to say to people, like, get like two grams per kilo or more. Now it's like, eh, if someone's like not in a harsh deficit and they're getting like even 1.6 and that's split across three or four meals and they're actually training properly hard consistently, like I, I just don't think there's going to be any practical uh, detriment to that. Now, could they absolutely maximize it by going a bit more, timing things very specifically? Maybe. And then when it comes to the question of muscle retention, there's even more room to maneuver there as well. Like you said, it's probably more difficult to lose muscle than I think a lot of bodybuilders fear. Um, If you're still training in some way and there's an adequate stimulus there and your protein is reasonable and split across a few meals, it's going to be a, you're probably not going to really see much loss of muscle so i think yeah we can get hyper focused on just looking at this from muscle protein synthesis perspective of only how protein feeding impacts it as opposed to overall what are we doing with our uh, training number one and then number two what we're doing with say our overall calories and our stress and our sleep Uh, and i think being reasonable in most of those probably gives most people no reason to actually worry too much we could i mean i would love to talk about this for another hour but we are pressed a bit by time so let's get into a more general discussion about chronotypes and the situation we are in with the whole covid19 lockdown because from what i've seen like unless you are still working which is obviously a huge minority of people right now um or you are working you know in your regular job and you don't even if you have to work um from home i think there is still some leeway uh, with that but most people who are not working and who are stuck inside basically from what i've seen and i know this from my own experience their schedule have been shifted more so towards a later quote-unquote chronotype because for example myself i've gotten into a habit of where i go to sleep at almost two every single night and i religiously wake up at 11 something like, the good thing is that I've been getting eight, uh, nine plus hours of sleep for like weeks now and I feel amazing. 
um, it's really fascinating, you know, uh, to notice that once you do have a consistent uh, wake and you know sleep time, your body does get accustomed. Now the not so good thing of it is that it's a bit late for my own uh, liking because if you wake up at 11 something that you know you lose a bunch of productive hours so I've been trying to also from you know listening to to your content and thinking about this issue I've been trying to change that a bit that's why I also move my workouts for at least the majority of it I move them from like 8 to 10 p.m to more so like maybe 3 to 5 p.m so that's why I um um, I'm also trying to have this conversation with you to, to gain further insight into how I can improve, you know, sort of have my cake and eat it too. So basically find a way that also works in a theoretical basis, but also works for my more schedule. Um, like, have you noticed this as well? Maybe you've had discussions with friends and colleagues and whatever that most people seem to just uh, go to sleep later and wake up later yeah so i've actually had a conversation with a, sl- a sleep medicine doctor recently um about some of these issues and i think they're the way uh we're viewing it is there's both a challenge and an opportunity by the loss of routine that a lot of people have so be- if people haven't been able to work either they're working from home or maybe they're they've lost their job or whatever their situation is um, maybe they're in college or university and now they're at home. The loss of routine gives a great opportunity to people who, like you say, maybe a later chronotype. And now they don't have to be up super early to be commuting to work at a specific time or to get to class at a specific time. So now they can actually sleep in to the point where is natural to them and go to bed at a point that's more natural to them. So if someone is a later chronotype, now they don't have the constrictions of how most of society is set up that kind of biases up to having to get up early. And so they may actually do a lot better now that they can have a later sleep and wake time. However, the, the big caveat here is something that you mentioned, I'm glad you did, is that it's the consistency of those day-to-day that's really important as well. Because the challenge of this loss of routine is that while we have this freedom now to pick our sleep and wake times, there's also the trap that we can fall into of having random sleep and wake times because, oh, I don't have to be up tomorrow at a specific time. So instead of going to bed at 11, like I usually do, I'm going to stay up until two tonight watching this movie. Right. And and so if you end up with wildly different sleep times from day to day, because you've no reason to wake up the next day, day at a specific time, number one, you're throwing out your, your sleep. And we know that not having consistent sleep times can lead to poor quality sleep. And it's also probably tying into this background feeling of anxiety because you have no set routine. You don't, you feel like you don't have a structure. So what I would say to people is to kind of get the positive opportunity here is to kind of figure out, well, what are the times where I naturally want to sleep and therefore where will I naturally wake up without an alarm the next day? So if for you that ends up being something like 1am until... 10 a.m. Or, or or whatever you wake up at and you do that consistently and feel good then that may be perfect and you may not need to shift that earlier for someone else if they're just doing it out of habit that they're just staying up late every night but they're not feeling that great and maybe they know if they got to bed earlier and woke up earlier consistently that would suit them better 
then do that. So I would say find a routine where give yourself enough number of hours that you can sleep, first of all, and then time it what you think is going to be you're able to do each day and try and find where that naturally is going to be for that person. So we know that there's also an impact here of age. So people who are teenagers, for example, will typically have a later chronotype and people who are older adults will typically that will shift to becoming a much earlier chronotype. And there's obviously variation between people of all age groups as well. So you can now have a great opportunity to find what chronotype uh, or, or what timing for your sleep suits you and your chronotype. But there's also the challenge of don't be Uh, just going to bed at random times because you don't have a specific thing to wake up to the next morning. Instead, make sure you keep some degree of restrictions. And certainly that's what I found that um, you, you see this idea of having restrictions or restraints or discipline being such a powerful idea. And so many people talk about this. I mean, like the classic one line I always think about is the Jocko Willink discipline equals freedom and it this is the exact example of it now like we can all are acutely aware that if we have no restraints and no routine and no structure and don't have a time to to get up that that seems like oh we can just do whatever we want we have freedom but it leads this inner kind of chaos and this feeling of uh, just of feeling lost so set yourself a, a wake-up time and make sure you kind of stick to that, even if there's no specific thing you have to be doing then. And then adjust your kind of uh, sleep and wake times according to what you feel best at and just do those consistently. And I think that will kind of give the best of uh, both worlds. That's great advice. And I love, absolutely love that quote. It's actually my uh, my wallpaper, my phone. <laughs> oh, amazing. So yeah. I, I love it. I love it. Um, you know, what I'm, what I'm really curious about is how does one go about finding their chronotypes, though? Because, you know, obviously the two most powerful things we've mentioned for, for sort of uh, resetting or, you know, establishing a, your clock, biological clock, is light and food. And obviously we, we, we have a practical issue of many people not, one, not being able to go out because the government doesn't really allow it in any significant amount or simply they do not want to go out because you know they are afraid of catching the virus or infecting others or whatever the consideration might be i literally seen people who haven't left their houses in weeks like obviously and if you live in an apartment you don't have a garden or something like that you don't really get much sunlight at all and uh so there is that side, then if you balance that or add on top of that, you know, irregular feeding patterns or just erratic meal timings, that sort of stuff, it becomes really difficult to, you know, actually find out what your natural chronotype would be like. How would you go about uh, establishing whether you are an early and or a later chronotype? Because, you know, regardless of the chronotype, I guess we can always get... Uh, suck up and you know binge watching money heist or whatever <laughs> the latest trending show is on netflix right so uh, the probably the most accurate way is there's actually some validated questionnaires that can give you an answer to your chronotype so one that i would suggest people can like download this freely on the internet it's called the munich chronotype questionnaire mctq and that was developed by till ronenberg who is one of like the big researchers in this area Um, And so you can take that questionnaire and it will look at various variables like your normal time of going to bed, 
um, what time you typically prepare to start going to sleep. It will look at uh, sleep latency, which is essentially how many minutes you take to fall asleep after trying to sleep. Um, how often you use an alarm. It will look at your light exposure. So on average, how much time you're spending outdoors, etc. So it takes a lot of these different variables into account. You fill out that questionnaire and it can give you um, a, an indication of where your chronotype is. So that would be one way to get an accurate assessment. Uh, one more kind of a, just intuitive way that if people don't really want to worry too much about that may also just be like how they generally feel. So if they are staying up really late at night watching Netflix and even if they're sleeping in the next day and it, and so it looks like they're getting like eight plus hours of sleep, but they're still waking up really groggy, maybe that might be an indication of oh, what if I tried getting to bed a bit earlier and waking a bit earlier, will that make any difference? So it's it's a bit more subjective, but it, it may do the trick for some people. But if they want to work out their chronotype, then there are some really good questionnaires. And, and like I said, probably the Munich chronotype questionnaire is a good one to, to try. Um, it, it's very easy to find. If they just Google that, they'll be able to find that pretty easy. Um, so I'd suggest... Uh, checking that out maybe awesome and i looked it up in the meantime and i will definitely link it in the description of the episode so i think that pretty much covers everything i wanted to touch and of course we could we could discuss these issues for for like hours and never get to the bottom of it and i'm very much looking forward to where this research area where it takes us um like i said for myself i've been you know trying to sort of consider this literature as well and um, I, I will try to train earlier more so in that three to five two to five range something like that and have my my huge post-workout meal more so at five or six and get you know a walk-in um, while there is plenty of sunlight outside so that seems uh, two good strategies for me to implement and I'm sure people will also be able to take you know some nuggets from from this whole discussion and uh, implement it into their own lifestyles anything else i didn't ask you some final message you would like to leave people with uh, about the whole you know covid19 situation and chrononutritional aspects considerations something like that uh not particularly and i don't want to be kind of too uh, preachy about stuff either so i think just uh in these kind of crazy times the the usual stuff people are hearing elsewhere just take care of yourself and hope people are, are doing well and uh, just keep faith in what we're doing with these restrictions right now are going to pay off and eventually things will get back to normal. It might not be for a while, but eventually they will. Um, and so one thing that I've been trying to focus on because it, it can be difficult when you lose your normal structure and um, a lot of people are probably feeling a loss of meaning and stuff like that as well is don't be too harsh on yourself about needing to be productive all the time, but also try and think, okay, what things can I do that will be of benefit to me in the long term uh, once this is all done? There are certain things I can be doing. And that can be as simple as like making sure you're getting some training sessions in because you know that will be useful to you in the long term. It could be learning something or reading something, whatever it is, and just knowing, okay, this is, has a, a long-term benefit to it. Uh, at least for me, that's been, I've been able to find that useful. Um, so that's all I would say on that. But other than that, I think uh, 
nothing else comes to mind. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great message. And I've been saying that, you know, sleep is something that I would prioritize in this time. I've been saying that, you know, if you're at home pretty much every all the time, basically, and you still don't get A plus hours, like, that's, that's on you. Like, right now, you really don't have most people, I won't say everyone, but, you know, most people don't really have a, a legitimate excuse not to sleep. Of course, if you have to take care of children and stuff, that's that's a different story. But if you're, you know, more so in the younger uh, demographic and you don't have college and you don't have school and that sort of stuff, prioritize your sleep and find some, you know, I've been saying that, you know, just control what you can and find some semblance of a normal life in these abnormal times because otherwise you'll just go crazy i think yeah i exactly would echo that yeah try and find anything that you can keep uh keep you going through this time and and take care of your uh, emotional and psychological health from that perspective so that was episode 46 of the muscle engineering podcast hope you enjoyed it and hope you find it valuable before we go i wanted to and with some of my own takeaways, although I do consider that most of the relevant uh, take-home messages have been covered and highlighted by both of us in the episode. Uh, I tried to keep a more of a practical tone to this whole discussion, but still I would like to reiterate some points. Um, the first which would be, and probably the most important one would be what Danny so clearly highlighted, which is uh, you should start probably with assessing your own priorities and uh, what the main focus of your nutri- nutritional approach is right now. So if you're interested you know, in just putting on as much muscle as possible, it's probably not the uh, best idea to uh, focus on chronic nutrition too much and restrict your food intake too much. It's probably not the best idea to cut off your meals at 6 p.m. for example if you only go to sleep at 10 or 11 because you know then you will have more than 12 hours probably you have more like 15 hours the next day before the you eat another meal and you should probably have another protein feeding how big of a difference is that going to make i would say not much if any however if you're someone who just wants to tick every box no matter what then you should probably have some protein in the other big aspect to keep in mind is that, you know, calories are still the most relevant uh, aspect. However, that doesn't mean that none of this stuff matters, you know, that doesn't mean that nutrient timing doesn't matter at all. If you check out that study, uh, a link in the description, the Richter et al. paper, which was uh, not uh, not so long ago published, uh, you'll notice that... Um, Timing your your calories can impact stuff like energy expenditure, both via dietary uh, diet induced thermogenesis, but also via non exercise activity, most likely. So, what you eat or how much you eat is still the most important factor, but it can also influence the other aspect of energy balance, how much you subsequently move. That's another aspect to keep in mind. So, I would say you know with this whole chronic nutrition, it's probably best to be reasonable. So try to consume most of your calories not too close to bed that's a poor habit of mine which i need to get rid of so try not to eat a ton of calories at 11 or you know at midnight and you'll probably be just fine so uh, 
I hope that was uh, a good summary and a good takeaway to end on. So thank you for tuning in again and I will talk to you all very soon.